millennials they don't care they don't they don't like sucking up to no one <laughs> like they will destroy everything <laughs> they will destroy everything you don't like me destroy it burn the place down welcome to the under the sycamore tree podcast produced by rebel women lit and queerly stated and i am your host carla moore of more just lend we your ears however there's something good with it One of the privileges of this podcast is to speak with groups established in different eras. Some were founded in the last decade, like St. Lucia's Helen's Daughter, Integrated Health Outreach of Antigua and Barbuda, and Wapichan Women's Movement of Guyana. Well, some were at least a few decades old, like regional organization Carry Flags, Guyana Trans United, and the Guyana Rainbow Foundation, and Belize's Power. The beginning of these organizations reach back to the end of what could be considered the first recognized wave of openly queer and feminist identifying organizing. We'll be discussing topics that some listeners may find triggering, including domestic violence, family abuse, and stigma. We understand that these topics can be difficult to hear about, and we want to remind our listeners that it's okay to take a break if you need to. This is Colleen Douglas-Hines, director of Guyana Rainbow Foundation, also known as Gaibo. At the time of this recording, she was planning to hand over leadership of Gaibo to Shifani Harilal. Shifani is a former client, now stepping forward to the position of leader. Okay, well, I'll talk a little bit about the family problem and I will want to hand over to, to, to Shifani to tell you a little bit more. Um, she she has been doing quite a lot and uh, it's also an opportunity for her to learn i've already announced in several places <laughs> that uh you know i am aiming to uh to to minimize my my responsibilities in the organization i've been there for 21 years when gaibo started there were some things that were very clear from the beginning the need for a safe space was very, very clear from the beginning. So I always say to people, for 21 years, we have always wanted a safe space. Um, the need to have support system is in place, uh, not just for um, LGBTQ plus persons, but also for the family members of those persons um, was always uh, very important. And they were important. We recognize the importance of these things because I, I remember my own personal experience of, um, of, of, of coming out. I never felt that there was any support system anywhere in doing that. I pretty much did that, um, on my own with my family. One time for me had, um, you know, even though she was in tears, my mom was, 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 was very supportive and talked about how much she loved me regardless, you know, and I took that as, as uh, as an inspiration and a motivation to, to ensure that one of the things that Gaibo did as an organization was to provide that support system for other um, families who were, uh, they were either struggling with coming out to their, to their family members or when they did, you know, to sort of embrace and support the, the, the reaction as though family members who were receiving that information. So that was the first aspect of our family program. Hearing Colleen's plan for peace and retirement, or in her more diplomatic words, stepping back, might just feel like 
a dim glow of sun getting ever brighter on an upturned face like a queer elder making a living through queer organizing and then being able to retire peacefully oh we love to see it this is susan dorson chair of women's way foundation of suriname Listen as she tells us more about Women's Way and recounts how she inherited the leadership of the organization from its founders. I am the chair of Women's Way Foundation. Women's Way Foundation is an organization that focuses on anything, any issue surrounding lesbian women, bisexual women, queer women, and transmasculine persons in Suriname. For the chair of, of, of Women's Way Foundation too, literally hand me over the organization when she left was meant so much that I now get to lead and and help um, my people be better when I wasn't well at all 10 years ago it really means a lot so thankfully Susan got quite candid about intergenerational issues within queer organizing with disagreements going both ways to have this 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 group of people who are willing to just support each other and share and i i like i missed that when i was when i came out so i didn't have that i, I had these old women in the women's way foundation there was a bunch of old women who already had children um then decided to live their their, their best lives and be who they really are and then they decided to to, to start this organization because they thought it was important and I was the only young one. I was I was seventeen in the midst of thirty-five-year-old, fifty-year-old women. So the gap was big, and to now see people younger than me, sixteen and fifteen, just coming out and living their best life, it is amazing. We ended our last episode with a map, and we'll begin this next episode with another type of map, something like a map of our lineage. We're speaking to Larry Chan, who describes himself as a Chinese Jamaican gay man, born to Hakka Chinese immigrant parents. He's a community organizer and also a spiritual counselor. We know Larry as a founder of Jamaica's Gay Freedom Movement, or GFM. Founded in 1978, GFM is one of our region's earliest gay rights organizations. Larry is also a founding member of the Jamaica Forum of Lesbians, All Sexuals and Gays, or JFLAC, currently one of our region's oldest active queer rights organizations. Larry's life portal takes us from Michael Manley's Jamaica to Black Power organizing in the Bay Area on the West Coast of the United States. You will notice that intergenerational frictions exist. Some elder activists feel younger activists are too hardline and uncompromising, while for some of the younger activists, their elders seem too respectability-oriented, a little too conservative in their demands, and possibly too slow in their acceptance of diverse gender identities, proper pronoun usage, and inclusion of disability justice. Sometimes, these generalizations come to define our ways of being together, masking the true work and being of elders, youth, and all in between. During this episode, we will explore some of what and who came before this moment in our movement. We recognize that these frictions exist and have existed for some time, but what are the roots of these frictions? 
How can we focus on commonalities within the queer and gender justice spaces? Though we want our traumas validated in the space, we need to recognize that others' traumas are equally valid and hold space for them as well. What could this look like? So I think that knowledge sharing within the age groups is also important because we tend to not do that. And also because I don't know, I don't know if you experience the same thing, but like, for example, in the Caribbean or in Suriname, uh, adults don't share their experiences with children or people they consider children. They voice these opinions about our lives to us. Bitch, I've been going through shit. I've been going through a lot of shit. I've been out here struggling with these lesbians. Let me be mom. Like I, I've seen, I've seen young L- LGBT advocates Af- uh, actually destroy the hard work that their that their forefathers, foremother did, mothers did. Right. So I think that comes. It also comes out of a sense that um, I, I don't know. In in the in the past, um, I think activism was assertive yet subtle. And now we tend to be more aggressive and open. And sometimes you, you you take one step forward and ten steps back with that. While you could just, they, like in Suriname, they always say you can catch more flies with honey than with um, um, coal. So sometimes you need to suck up to your haters to like get where you need to be. But millennials, they don't care. They don't. They don't like sucking up to no one. <laughs> like they will destroy everything. <laughs> they will destroy everything. You don't like me? Destroy it. Burn the place down. It needs to end now. And like, I've been really fighting with um our young our young LGBT advocates about that. Like to 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 teach them to execute with finesse and not just be a bad bitch all the time. Just execute with finesse. Like get things done in an orderly fashion also because that's that says a lot about you because people use that against us you know they use that you see there they go again these rebel lesbians right so well in, in, in a way you could say i don't care what they think about me but you should care because if you represent the entire community you get everyone named Dornish because you behave a certain way right so yeah I think you know. I think you know. We need to. We need to. We need to advocate or advocate and advise our advocates before they go out to advocate. Because sometimes being very aggressive just makes better impact and gets done. But it's also a matter of knowing when, where, and how to do that. And I think that's the problem that that they're experiencing. Because millennials just they just, just don't care about nothing. And when they do care, they really care that they can put everything else because they care so much. So it's a matter of finding the balance in with when when to use your superpowers and when to just um, retreat, regroup, rethink, and come back. Sometimes I wonder whether these frictions would exist if we had models for intergenerational activism, models that recognize and acknowledge the trauma of our elders as different from, but just as real as the trauma of our youth. Models that center bonding between generations, community being, reveling in our rich interiority and allow us to live in the wholesome parts of ourselves where youth can sit at the feet of elders to learn, to be nourished, to challenge boundaries, to experiment and investigate, to upskill the wholesome parts of ourselves that encourage both the authority 
and softness in our elders to sit with us, stroke our hair, hold our hands and open our gazes, deliver stories and lessons and revel in their legacy. But here, another elder, our celestial guide, Colin, helps us bridge these gaps through understanding the role youth play in movements to giving helpful context and criticism of his peers. To imagine, it's not my job to prescribe. They are living different lives than I led. The priorities that their generation has may not be the ones that mine had. I do my best to listen across generations. So, we offer another gift to you. We are so excited to bring you the first conversation of our podcast between Larry Chang, founder of Jamaica's Gay Freedom Movement, who is also widely recognized as one of the founders of our region's gay rights movement, and Lucien Hovart, board member of WVL Grantee Partner Carry Flags and one of the long-standing stalwarts of Caribbean organizing. I had gone to college in America mm-hmm. and uh, I studied art because I'm a creative person. Mm-hmm. I can't hide from that. And at the time, um, Michael Manley was in power and socialism was, you know, the, the thing of the day. And my parents being um, typical middle-class Chinese people in Jamaica were looking to run from the country because, mm-hmm. you know, everything is collapsing. And, you know, during that period, thousands of middle-class Jamaicans left. They took one of the five flights that Michael Manley recommended and left the island, you know, sold their business, lock up whatever they had sold, you know, and shipped trailer loads to Miami and Toronto and wherever. I was still in school and when I was, it was time for me to graduate, my parents said, don't come back. But as a patriotic Jamaican, my intention was always to come back to Jamaica. And because, you know, I was all about nation building, that wonderful, idealistic, noble thing. Um, but I did make a contract with myself to say that I am going to go back, but only on my terms. And what are my terms? I am not going to live a lie. Because I had come out when I was in college in the States. I went to, I happened to go to school in Oakland, California, which is right next to Berkeley, California, which was a hotbed of radicalism. The Black Panther Party started in Oakland. I attended Black Panther meetings. I heard Huey Newton and all of these guys speak, you know, this is a living history, you know? Yeah. So of course I filled up with all of these ideas and, um, I said, okay. I will go back to Jamaica, but I'm just going to be myself. I'm not going to tell nobody no lie. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to dissemble. And so that was my, my own terms that I said for me to come back to Jamaica, which I did. And, um, this was in 1972. And, uh, I think within three years. Um, I had started, you know, activism, working with GFA. Mm-hmm. 
So that's basically how it started. Early 1970s. Okay. Yeah. And so the, the impetus for you, it sounds like I'm coming back to Jamaica, but I, I have to be my authentic self. And how does that translate into activism? That's the question I want to ask because some people could say, okay, you want to be your authentic self. So come back and be your authentic self. Not everybody says, but then I need to make space for other people. No, what drove me to the activism is purely the focus on self and self-integrity. If I am going to be myself, then I have to create conditions. I have to um, create this, a situation where I can be myself. And in doing that for me, yeah. then obviously other people will be impacted. They will be influenced. They will be drawn in. They will whatever. So it, it is a purely selfish act. It's not a matter of being community-minded and, and um, altruistic and blah, blah. No, no, no. This is a purely selfish act to say that this is me, this is who I am, and this is how I am going to live. Yeah. Now, if this helps you to also make that decision or something similar, then that's wonderful. No? So that's basically it. I didn't do it out of no thing to help nobody. No, son of <laughs> Just help yourself first. In helping myself, other people will be helped. Yeah. I'm, I am glad that you said that because I think a lot of activists who are coming to the work now struggle with and struggle with the idea of saying i'm doing this for myself there's the understanding that it must be community first and you must be coming to the work from this altruistic place so i think this thing where you say eh, eh, no 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 me no, the one live in a one place where suit me hello that's right that's right and yeah so when you're approaching it from that point of view then it has to be authentic and it is genuine and it is sustainable. If you are doing it for this other reason that is external to you, then any little breeze blow, you're going to run and hide. True. Yeah, because you are not doing it from this deep-seated self, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Can I jump in here? Yes. Because I think that that point is very pivotal having that conviction that is that is that you own that is yours um and then i think some people because of who they are and having made that decision that that is how they would want to live their life find themselves in situations where they need to defend that decision and especially i imagine in those days if you are the only one in a in a community and and um you've made that decision and it seems to be so radical or different from what what is held as uh the norm that you're going to be challenged and if if you're somebody who's going to then speak up about it you then suddenly find yourself doing activism you know but you're just really saying hey leave me alone this is me and this is my and they're explaining that constantly but you find yourself you know, being a public outspoken person on these issues and you're constantly educating people 
And so I think there is something so inherent about um, when you're in your own power and in your authenticity, how that sort of um, the mirrored side of that is activism. I did not set out to be an activist, but just to be myself required that I become an activist. Now, the thing is that in those days, activism was not a word. I didn't know that, that word. It didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, I just did what I had to do. Though it's in hindsight, you turn around and say, oh, that is activism. Well, okay, that's fine. But at yeah. the time we were doing what we were doing, we were just, you know, trying yeah. to make a space for ourselves. Yeah. Okay. So nowadays, you kids can say, okay, yes, there's activism. I'm going to be an activist. You know? Yeah. We didn't have that option. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true because we're coming to the work at a time when people have been doing the work for a long time. Exactly. Like we're not what like fifty years into the work. The precedents have been established. You see, we didn't have any precedents. Yes. So, from that perspective, at the time when you came to the work, was there anybody that you would have said could have been an elder, and you know? If you're coming to it like nothing at the boat, how do you come up with your ideas around organizing? Like, how did you call them? So, this is the approach I'm going to take. Okay, as I said earlier, we made it up as we went along. Mm -hmm. It was purely an organic type of development. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I was trying to massage it along the way because I had been exposed to you know, organizations abroad and activism and groups and radicals and blah, 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 blah. So I kind of had an idea, although I was not involved directly myself. But, yeah. you know, you have the ideas. Yeah. Consciousness is deep. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of, you know, doing what is in front of you to do. Um, the other thing is that you asked me, well, if I looked around to see, well, who could, no, there was nobody. There were a lot of people who had, you know, sex with their own um, gender and whatnot. But you have to remember, there was no consciousness yeah. to say that I am lesbian or gay or whatever. whatever. It was not, the, the word gay wasn't even permitted yeah. in, in the gay night. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are going to talk about anything like this, it was in quotation marks or it was hush hush. It was spoken behind, you know, your, your hands. Um, this was not anything for polite conversation. It was a totally different social, um, climate. Because you have to remember the context now was that homosexuality is an abomination, it's a sin, it's illegal, it's da da da, it's a disease, it's, you know, all of those things were prevalent at that time. So there is nobody in their right mind, no matter who they were fucking, 
is going to say, I am. So basically, that was my task, is to come along and be the first one to say, I am. Yeah? In other words, I was going to come now with a stick and jam it into the ground to say, I am. And that is really my only claim to, to any kind of uh, whatever. Yeah. And I'm the first one to come and say that. Yeah. Nothing else. Okay, all the other things that came along was only corollary to that. Yeah. Think we are making a point to say I am. I am. I am. So when you're the first, what was it like for you? Because you said, that's what I did. I was the first to say I am. But being the first to say I am in a situation where nobody wants to say I am, that is a very significant thing to do. What was it like for you inside of that moment when you said i am what were the responses like and what was that experience like for you personally when the responses were responses were varied mostly negative um and surprising well i shouldn't be surprised because of the prevailing mindset of people in the gay community themselves who condemned me by saying you cannot say that. You are bringing attention to ourselves. You are rocking the boat. Leave things as they are. That was a huge, huge um, disappointment. It doesn't really. But, you know, that yeah. my own community. Well, of course, it wasn't a community. These are just people who happen to be, you know, homosexual. They, but they were the, the worst critics that I had. And a lot of people stopped talking to me, avoided me because they didn't want to be seen in my company in the event that they themselves would be tagged. But there is all of that. It's that whole self-denial, that whole, you know, whatever. Yeah. No, I understand it. I empathize and I sympathize because I knew where they were coming from. But at the same time, it was such a blow. I thought it was a very lonely journey. Because nobody wanted to work with you. Yeah. I get that. It sounds ironically very similar to what some of the older activists say about the younger activists today which is why you're blowing it up so much, you know, why you're making it so low. You're putting it in everybody's face. You're making people uncomfortable. That is the same lines. Yeah. You don't have to ram it down their throats. Why, you know, all of that crap. Yeah. In a lot of people, the, the mindset hasn't changed. So this is why our work never ends. And this is why we have to really focus on our own people first. And in fact, that was one of um, that was one of GFM's primary tasks was to build self-consciousness, focus on self, then educate others, the wider community. Yes, sir, we talk about intergenerational building and continuity planning. 
attempts of Yahweh Atabo because we just hear from Larry, right? Larry is an artist. Larry is also a leader in the study of Jamaican language. You probably want to believe that because Larry is a Chinese man. Lucien picks up from Larry and he also picks up the story of queer movement in our region from like another nineteen thousand. So, Lucien, though, I want to talk to you about your experience. So you're coming into the work after some of the precedent has been set. You know, after Larry has been put on the stick and say, I am Simia. That's it. What? Been planted, yes. It had been planted. When did you start the work and what brought you to this work? Okay, I have two answers to that. The first is that the work started when I was born. So we we'll go back to the late 80s, but... <laughs> I took up responsibility <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in the late um, 2000s. Okay. Um, um, and, and it's really a, a tale of two things because I started new re youth representation first. That was um, towards the uh, sort of mid, mid 2000s and then eventually found myself um, also doing uh, LGBT human rights issues around 2009, um, moving forward. And, and by 2014, I really had gotten into the regional, um, uh, side of, of activism, LGBT activism in, in, in the Caribbean, um, and, and, uh, been the chair of the steering committee from 2016. Um, yeah, so. There are so many things that, that uh, resonate with me from just uh, listening to Lai and, and I have a couple of thoughts. Um, one of the things that, that I find so um, ironic, and this is not just in, in LGBT activism, because I've done a lot of work in youth representation, I could take a sort of a manifesto um, the outcomes of a youth congress from 1985 and circle the relevant issues then and just apply them to today because they're the same. Mm. Um, similarly, issues that existed in the 1970s um, pertaining to quality of life improvement mm. for LGBT persons are the same today with a few contextual ch uh, changes, but, mm -hmm. but I, I'm not coming to these as an issue in need of active work, uh, improvement work. I'm coming to these as a, a, an, an individual need. Uh, they relate to freedoms and, and individual liberties, right? Rights that that's not going to change, you know, the right to, um, relate to other persons, the right to health and education and, and to, to be your authentic. So those things are not going to change. And so the work going forward will largely look the same. Um, it is just the struggle is always contextual. What do you have access to or not? And how that does, how does that impact you? That is where we fight, but the issues are the same. Um, and so that the fight that has happened and is happening, uh, in Jamaica, is maybe contextually different mm -hmm. than the fight that I've been part of in Suriname. Mm -hmm. um, but the issues are the same, yeah. right? Yeah. Suriname does not, for example, have Bulgari laws on the book, never did. Yeah. Um, so we're not fighting that particular issue right. in our context, but <laughs> the issue is the same. 
were, were not necessarily um, compared to, to other members of society able to live life in the same way. Um, for, for a long time, there were discrepancies in the law um, where it related to um, sexual initiation. There was a higher, um, a longer sort of, a wider age of consent range when it pertained to same sex. Um, so where, where, for, where, where the age of consent sort of set at 16, I think it, it used to be 20 or 21, something like that. Um, and so there, there were those discrepancies and those have now been changed, but there's more work left to do. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, um, it's interesting to see how much, uh, how similar some of the struggle, some of the issues are, but then at the same time, how different the operational context has become and how that then changes how you go about doing and achieving. Yeah. Uh, and especially what we have, that is a huge difference with what Larry had. We have Larry to work with. Larry did not have Larry to work with. Larry, no, right? I have no Larry. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Larry and, and many others. Right. Yeah. So we, we have that. We have hindsight. Uh, many things that have been tried and failed are lessons. We have those. Um, um, and, and they had they had the advantage of pioneering. Um, I heard. Um, which is which is maybe less um, <laughs> less celebratory as I, I bring it now as, as the experience was back then. Pioneering can be quite frustrating. Um, and and uh, maybe even dangerous, right? But um, it, it is it is it is nonetheless it's a wonderful thing that that had occurred. A lot of times we talk about intergenerational trauma, but we also have to talk about intergenerational healing. And I feel like this is what is happening here. To be able to listen to Larry, who's been holding it down from the seventies, talking to Lucien who's been carrying that button from the 2000s is something that my soul didn't know it needed. And I am so excited for the next generation of leaders that's going to come to work in our region. This episode was produced by Rebel Women Lit and Queerly Stated with support from Australia Lesbian Foundation for Justice, Equality Fund and Global Affairs Canada. Research and writing by Jackie Brown, script editing and project management by Devan Moses, editing and sound by Jerrine Patmore and Sophia Chenier, and outreach by Ashley Daly. Remember to head on over to the show notes to find the details of the organizers featured in our episode and rebelwomenlit.com for additional references. Thank you so much for joining me, your host, Carla Moore, under the sycamore tree.